If you could receive the greatest possible news this morning, what would it be? Just anything. Okay. That's not the answer. It is the answer. What would you say outside of Christ coming? That's the right answer Brother Jesse gave me. But if you could give any answer, what would it be? If you got a text right now, if you got a phone call that you had to take, and somebody could give you the greatest news you could hear, what would it be? That answer potentially is another gospel. Unless it's his answer, it's the right gospel. That answer potentially, whatever it would be, the greatest possible news that you could ever possibly hear is potentially a false gospel. I take my text from Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. So my title this morning is, There is no other. There is no other gospel. But the churches at Galatia were in the process of turning. I think the book would bear out that they had not fully gone there yet. So Paul writes this rebuke of a letter, because he loves them, to rescue them from another gospel. And although later in this book he will tell us specifically what the gospel is that they are embracing, here it's left open so that you can fill in the blank. What other gospels are you lured by? What is another gospel? And what is Paul saying is the danger of another gospel? This book, the structure of this book, can be divided into three sections. Chapter 1 and 2, Paul defends his apostolic authority. The gospel is hanging on Paul's apostolic authority. If he's not who he says he is, if he didn't receive his gospel from Christ, and if he's not an apostle as some men from James in chapter 2 were claiming probably from Jerusalem. To be from James doesn't mean necessarily that James sent them or that James approved of them, but probably Jewish Christians who were going behind Paul and convincing the churches of Galatia that Paul was not an apostle. He was not with the original twelve. That's true. He didn't hear the gospel directly from Jesus, so they say. That would be true uh, from a standpoint of when Jesus was on the earth. So therefore, Paul is not an apostle, and his gospel just came out of his head. And so they're using that as a convenient way to push a gospel of works, focused in on the ceremonial law, circumcision. You had to be circumcised if you really want to be saved. To have Christ is good, but you need to be like a Jew if you want to be saved. And so it was circumcision. How is that another gospel? You say, well, that really doesn't tempt me. But another gospel or gospels is like an onion. It has several different layers. Each one is distinct and separate, but at the core, there's a common core to every gospel. Whether it's the gospel that they were confronted with, another gospel of their day, or the myriad of gospels 
that we are potentially led away with at the core of every distinct and different gospel, good news is a common core we hope to identify today. Chapters 3 and 4 are about justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. Alone meaning no circumcision, no works, no activity, nothing to be done. Grace, faith, Christ alone. That's it. Chapters 3 and 4. 5 and 6, Paul will then unpack what justification by faith will look like in your freedom in Christ. What does it look like? What does it look like for a person to leave a socialistic government to come to America to be free? That should look like something. What does it look like for someone to stand fast in the liberty and the freedom wherewith Christ has made them free? Galatians 5.1, it looks like the fruit of the Spirit. Relationally, it doesn't look like biting and devouring. Galatians 5, it looks like love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, faith, temperance, meekness. Relationally, freedom that comes from being justified by faith in Christ looks like the fruit of the Spirit rather than the slavery of the flesh where there's tension, biting, devouring constantly. That's what freedom in Christ looks like. So we'll divide this message into two big parts. The second part will have maybe multiple little parts. So the first part is the warning of another gospel. Paul uses some strong language in this book to warn them of another gospel. Secondly, the weakness of another gospel. By looking at the negative side, we see the power of the real gospel. So we'll we'll look at those in uh, uh, contrary to one another. So the warnings of another gospel, Paul is going to use strong warnings, and then the weakness or the powerlessness of, of another gospel, what it can't do, and what the true gospel does for God's people. First, the warnings, verse 8. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have, we have preached unto you, let him be anathema, accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be anathema, cursed, damned. Paul feels so strongly of the seriousness of being turned aside to another gospel. There are some from Jerusalem, presumably, that trouble you in verse 7 and would turn about the gospel of Christ, pervert it, turn you about. Let him be damned, Paul says. Now that's pretty strong language. And he puts it in the form of a command, that's imperative mood. Let him be anathema, accursed. It's fascinating that Paul would speak of himself as if there were two Apostle Pauls. If we put it in the singular, he says, if I preach any other gospel than I have preached, let the second Paul be damned, but not the first one. Which makes no sense at all, does it? If somebody came to you with some good news this morning and you believed it and your whole life was shaped by it, And then a week later, they came back and said the exact opposite. You would not say, well, I'll take what he said the first time, but I'm not taking the second time. You'd say, I don't believe anything that man says. Paul says, if I come along and preach a different gospel than the gospel I preach to you, 
Let the second Paul be damned, but not the first one. Why? Because the first one is flawless, impeccable, because he's inspired. If Paul comes later and preaches another gospel, he's not inspired. Believe the first Paul, because his words were flawless. How many people are turning to other gospels because they're not resting on the foundation of the truth of the Word of God as flawless. Even with textual variance over the years, we have the Word of God. It is true. Now what does that have to do with your marriage on Monday morning? Okay, the Apostle Paul is authoritative. He is an apostle. He's sent from God. He, he was revealed this straight from Jesus Christ. I'm just trying on Monday to love my wife like Christ loved the church. Who said that? Paul did. I'm just trying to teach my children and to nurture and admonish the Lord. Who said that? Paul did. The gospel is hanging on the foundation of the church, which is the apostles and prophets. If Paul's not an apostle, I don't know what you're doing here. The church is sinking without Paul's words, not because of Paul, because he's inspired. Paul's preaching was flawless only because the Holy Spirit gave him what to say. If he preaches anything different than what he said the first time when they were converted, Paul says, let me be damned. That's serious language, isn't it? The next two chapters, or chapter 1 and 2, is Paul unpacking the evidence objectively of his apostleship and authority. Nobody talks like that today. There are all kinds of opinions being thrown out, good news gospels, and nobody wants to back it up with objective evidence. Why do you believe that? Well, it's just the way I feel. Paul won't do, he won't leave you hanging. He will give point after point of objective evidence that you can look at and say, this man's an apostle, and this man got his gospel, not from his head, but from Christ. That's what chapter 1 and chapter 2 through verse 12 are all about. It's just point after point after point. He's not leaving the churches of Galatia hanging, but he gives objective, substantial evidence that he's who he says he is, or the gospel falls apart. I mean, he wrote most of the New Testament, the book that you believe, that's inspired. So the warning is, it, it, it causes us to, to be damned, to be condemned, or as Paul says, to be anathema. Of course, he's speaking primarily here about these false teachers, but he's warning the Galatians. You're going to go after and believe this false gospel? Here's a serious warning. The second one is in Galatians 3 verse 1. The warning is it causes us to be foolish. Oh foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Who's charmed you? Who has mesmerized you? That you should not obey the truth, the truth of the Apostle Paul that he received from Christ. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth before you crucified. It makes us foolish. That's a warning. Paul says, don't be fools. So what Paul had set before their eyes, now these other teachers had redirected their eyes 
to another gospel. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul would say it brings into question our own conversion, our own salvation. He would say, I am afraid of you. I am afraid lest I have bestowed labor in vain. It was just a waste of time. And Paul went among all the churches of Galatia and established the churches. He looks back and says, if you're really embracing this gospel, another gospel which is not another gospel, I'm afraid all of my labor, labor was to no avail. It was just a waste of time. He said, my little children in whom I travail in birth again till Christ be formed in you, which means he doesn't see Christ forming in them. Why? Because another gospel can't do that. Right? Paul was the instrument of their conversion. And now when he looks back, he says, was this a miscarriage? Was it like a stillbirth? If you turn to another gospel, Christ is not being formed in you. He's not being shaped and molded. The fruit of the Spirit is not working itself out. Rather, the dominion of the flesh in biting and devouring and in the works of the flesh that Paul speaks about in Galatians chapter 5. So it's, it's a warning. It's Paul saying, if you're turning to another gospel, check your conversion. That's strong language, but that's what Paul is willing to say because he loves these people. It's, it's, it's the point where he needs to speak directly with warnings because of the seriousness of turning away from God, away from Him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. In Galatians chapter 5, it means you've had a falling out with grace. How serious is that? Christ has become of none effect unto you, whosoever you be that are justified by the law. That's the other gospel He's dealing with. You've fallen from grace. We use the idiom to say, We've had a falling out when a relationship has temporarily or permanently been severed. Paul says, if you really are embracing another gospel, you've just had a falling out with the grace of God. It's been severed. The grace that you need for daily living, the grace that God supplies is not supplied through law, self-justification. It's only supplied through faith. And you're turning away from faith to another gospel. Therefore, you are having a falling out with the grace of God. It's not there. Now, notice Paul's words. Whosoever be among you, if this is really who you say you are, then I'm really telling you, you've fallen from the grace of God. And then in chapter 6, if those that belong to Christ have crucified the passions and the lust, and what that means is your, your lust and your passions are ruling the day. Now Paul is not just talking about a struggle with passions and lust of the flesh. He's talking to a people who are turning away from the gospel. See, that, that's, that's different than your struggle in believing the gospel. They are turning to a gospel of self-justification instead of by grace through faith in Christ. It was Christ and add a little circumcision or whatever you want to add to it. 
So these are the warnings that Paul gives in Galatians, or the church is there, not because he doesn't love them. Am I your enemy because I tell you the truth, Paul says? No, I'm your friend. I'm the one that loves you. These Judaizers, as often they are called by other writers, they don't love you. They're just making a fair show in the flesh. They zealously affect you, Galatians 4. They make much of you so that you will make much of them. And that's what they're in it for. But Paul's not in it for that. Paul loves God. He loves Christ. Therefore, he loves the people of God and is willing to warn them. And by his pen, God is warning us. Do you know that answer you gave? When I ask you the question, what is the greatest possible news you could receive? Just know that's a potential of the gospel. And I'm going to hope to show you why later. I don't run out of time. All right, now let's look at the weaknesses of another gospel. We'll just try to take them out of chapter 1 here. It's not another gospel, Paul says. It has no power like the true gospel does. And so first, another gospel cannot call you and sustain you into the grace of Christ. Now that's Paul's first point. I marvel, I am beside myself, I'm astounded, that's a mild rebuke, that you are so quickly removed from Him that called you into the grace of Christ. How did He call them into the grace of Christ? By the gospel. They received the gospel. They were called by God. They responded to the call of God. What was the call? To faith and repentance. They were called into the grace of Christ by faith and repentance because grace is supplied only through faith. And that shouldn't surprise us because we know the Bible says it over and over again, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You ever seen those public signs that has maybe a hand on it or a red circle with a line that says, no access, no public access. Picture that as God's hand. You try to come to me by any other way than faith and access me, no access. And that's what they're trying to do through works or through some other gospel. The only way we can have access into this grace, which is justifying grace by faith, is faith. You will never get there any other way. Muslims can't get there without the grace of God. Buddhists are not there. Only the Christian has access into grace if he's a true Christian because of faith. And of course, by the grace of God, anyone can become a Christian because it's all by the sovereign grace of God. Those are false gospels, false religions. They all have the same core of the other gospel that Paul is talking about here. How does this work? How did it work for the Galatians? How did it work for Paul? And how does it work for you? Well, listen to what Paul says in his own experience in Galatians chapter 1. He's giving some of the evidences why this gospel is from Christ and why 
He is an apostle. And one thing he uses is his own conversion. So it would say in verse 13 of chapter 1, If you have heard of my conversion in times past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. He wasted it. Now you've heard it because it was written for us. And they had heard it. And profited in the Jews' religion above many mine equals. Now, now Paul was a prosperity gospel man. Was he not? He was in it for the wealth. His whole religion was based on wealth and profit, and he was good at it. He was more profitable than any other of his equals. Would it make any sense now that the real gospel, he's using profit as a means to serve God? No, so the question is, if he was profiting so well, and things were going so good for him, why on earth would he turn to a religion where he was going to have to suffer greatly and give up everything? Because Christ revealed it to him. And that's what comes in the next verse, verse 15. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Now Paul's using it for evidence of his apostleship, but we're going to use it to look at the effectual call. Paul was called effectually. The word call means to bid to come or to summon someone. Now let's break this verse down. But when, I'm in verse 15, sovereign timing. I mean, why not the day before? Why not the month prior? That would have been better for a lot of those Christians. Why not 10 years earlier? Why not when he's 10 years old? Just go get him in the kingdom. Boy, that'd save a lot of lives. Sovereign timing. The effectual call is according to God's sovereign timing and sovereign pleasure. But when it pleased God, the pleasure of God in His timing is always for the name and the glory of God. Because God is aiming, according to Ephesians 1, for the praise of the glory of the grace that calls you. So sovereign timing, for anybody that comes to Christ, sovereign pleasure, it's according to God's good pleasure. Always good. Always good, never bad, never wrong, never evil, only holy, right, and good. From the timing to the pleasure of God that he has in his name, because Paul is going to see the name of God in Christ, and he's going to magnify that name by the way he lives. Sovereign timing, sovereign pleasure, sovereign separation. Who separated me from my mother's womb? That doesn't mean the origin of the separation was conception, as if God said, Well, I want Him. It preceded His existence. Before the world began, God had marked Him out and determined He would have been an apostle. Because Jesus said, He's a chosen vessel, Ananias, for me. When when did you separate Him? Forever He separated Him. Sovereign timing, sovereign pleasure, sovereign separation, sovereign call. He was called effectual. Effectual simply means it, it achieved the intended result. It's effectual. What's the result God was after? 
Now, if you ever want to see the effectual call in action, just as we read in Acts chapter 9, somebody says, well, what happened was God saw that Paul was going to trust him and turn and repent of his sin. Really? Right? He was bent on going to Damascus. He got very close. He was going to drag them back to Jerusalem, put them on trial, and probably have some of them killed. The only thing that arrested Paul was the irresistible grace. How could anybody look at that story and say, well, God foresaw what Paul would do? No, God did everything. God initiated the call. And it was effectual because of the Holy Spirit. It was all God, just like it is with anybody that becomes a Christian. It is all completely, thoroughly God that arrested Paul with irresistible grace. He called him. He bid him come, and he came. There's a song we sing in our book. It has those very words. He called, I came. Because the effectual call presupposes a response. In fact, the gospel does, doesn't it? If we're not calling for a response of faith and repentance, we're not preaching the gospel. Acts chapter 17, Paul told those at Mars Hill, God is commanding all men everywhere to repent. So Paul goes about doing that very thing. To preach the gospel is to call men to repent. Well, why isn't it that... When you call them, everybody doesn't come effectually. Paul knew the message of Christ. He hated it. Right? He heard Stephen's discourse. He was there. Because the creative act of God in giving life must precede the effectual call of the gospel. Now listen to what Paul says about this in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. He said, But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now look what just happened. Paul is preaching all men everywhere. Repent and believe. You're a sinner. Christ came to save. He calls them to faith and repentance. We know that because what was the response of the Jew? Paul, you're, you're crazy. That's just a stumbling block to the Greeks. That's foolish. Why would I ever give up my life that I love and follow some man that died on a cross? See, they understood what Paul was saying, but the response was it was a stumbling block and it was foolishness. But to them that are called, in the same two people groups, Jew and Gentile, Christ is now power and He's wisdom. So here's how that happens. Paul is, is externally calling men to faith in Christ. He's calling for response. He's just his voice going out to anybody that will hear. And then what happens? God acts to create life. To put in a heart that perceives, eyes that see, and ears that hear. And when God does that, then the Holy Spirit enlightens the mind savingly and the will so that there's a response to the gospel. Because there's been a call internal. And God bids the sinner, come to Christ. And he comes effectually. 
It's irresistible. Because now the heart that perceives and the eyes that see and the ear that's been implanted is implanted to enable to respond to the gospel call effectually and be saved, to be saved. That's why Paul was preaching everywhere. He wasn't discouraged when men ran him out of town and when men didn't hear. He knew when God calls effectually. When God does the creative act of implanting a new heart, a new will, new eyes and new ears, then the heart perceives, the eyes see, and the ears hear and responds effectually by following Jesus Christ. And somebody here says, how do I know I'm called? Are you a sinner that needs Jesus? Are you pretty good with life on your own? That's not for you. Does Jesus meet the need of your soul? Or is he just a hoax? Does it delight you to think that Jesus died to have you, to be your God, to work everything out for your good, to redeem you from all iniquity, to spare you from the wrath of God? Does that meet the need of your soul? Then I say with you like Ananias said to Paul in Acts 22, What are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized. Wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's what you need to do. That's what Paul did. As soon as his eyes could see, and and I said, Brother Saul, he was baptized. Has God given you a heart and an eye and an ear to hear the beauty and the good news of the gospel that Jesus was wounded for your transgression. All your God-belittling sins and thoughts and lust and actions and lies and belittling God, Jesus becomes sin. Not literally. He's pierced for our transgressions. Then the, the response is, I believe, I trust Jesus. I want to be baptized. See, there's only two ways to respond to the gospel. It's either love, hate, Receive or reject, embrace or refuse. You believe it or you don't believe it. There's no middle group there. Everybody in here is one or the other. There's no middle road. And the effectual call, it has a sovereign result. They call that teleologically. That's a big word that means it has an end. Back in Galatians 1, verse 16, what's the end? To reveal His Son in me and to me. That's what happened to Paul. And Paul didn't say, well, he's not so great. I'm just going to keep doing my thing. It was irresistible. To reveal means to uncover, to unveil, to disclose the glory of Christ. Paul's a changed man from ever, forever. He's still a sinner. He's a changed man. And he suffers great things for the name of Christ because of the name. He left the prophet. He left the old way. He left the old religion. He's a changed man forever. That is the effectual call. That's why we evangelize because we know God is going to call sinners out of the darkness into the light. And it will be effectual. Not because we say anything. Because as we say it, we call men to faith and repentance. God acts creatively hyper-physically by the operation of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit draws them to Christ. 
Because it is written, they shall all be taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and learned of the Father, he comes effectually by faith and repentance to Jesus Christ. Because he draws them. That word means to impel, to lead, to move forward. The Holy Spirit moves us forward to Christ as our Savior. That's what happened to Paul. That's what happened to the churches of Galatia. And now what? They're turning to another gospel. What's the upshot? Another gospel can't do this. The Holy Spirit's not working through another gospel. You're falling out of the grace of God. You're having a falling out with grace because you're turning to yourselves as a means to be right with God rather than trusting in Christ alone. By grace alone, apart from anything else, by faith without works of any kind, although faith produces works. So the gospel is powerless to call you, or the, uh, another gospel. Paul didn't use another gospel when they were effectually called. He was preaching the true gospel, and God opened the eyes, drew them to Christ, and they became lovers of Jesus. Number two, the weakness of the gospel, is, or of another gospel rather, is another gospel cannot deliver you. Now this is found in verse 3 and 4. Of chapter 1. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel. So you can see the connection there. Another gospel cannot deliver you. Now there Two ways I think Paul is speaking of deliverance here. The word deliverance can mean rescue from trouble, affliction, death. But that's not the meaning here because of two things. He delivered us from our sins and he delivered us from the present evil world. So that's, that's different than a physical being delivered from a, a trial or affliction. So the first deliverance, to be delivered from our sins, is to be delivered from the penalty of sin. To be justified means no penalty. Christ has absorbed the penalty on your behalf. The penalty is the wrath of God. The wages of sin is death, and that death is eternal. So Christ, in verse 4, gave Himself for you, for your sins to rescue you from the penalty of sin forever, both now and forever. But the second one is the one we want to focus on. He did that to deliver us from this present evil world. So not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. Another gospel can't do that. Another gospel is powerless to deliver you from this present evil world. In fact, another gospel draws you in to the present evil world. Paul uses the word ion here instead of cosmos. Ion means a period of time. So whatever the, the time period, we know that there were... Uh, they were in a time period of overlap. The Mosaic Age was ending. Paul addresses that in Galatians 4. We're in the gospel age. I don't think Paul is saying 
the ceremonial law was evil. It was a time period, an age that was evil. So the evil of that time period may be different from the evil of our time period. It may be worse, it may be better. But we live in a present evil age, a present time period. Cosmos is often used almost interchangeably at times to denote a life that's characterized by an age. Cosmos means a way of thinking, a way of feeling, a way of acting, a way of living. So in any evil age, there is a cosmos, a way of thinking, a way of feeling, a way of acting. And that way is opposed to God. It's of the world. It's worldly. It's not of God. Now, look at Galatians 6. Paul is going to use the word cosmos here instead of ion. Again, ion is time period age. Cosmos is a way of thinking. You remember in Romans 12 too, he uses cosmos. Be not conformed to this cosmos, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed in their way of thinking and feeling and living, rather be transformed from that, away from that. And in Ephesians 2, 2, he uses both words. Wherein in time past you walked according to the ion of this cosmos, the course of this world. There's a, there's a pathway to the age, a direction. And that direction is always a pathway of feeling and thinking and living that's contrary to to the true gospel. It's another gospel. It's contrary to God. So look at Paul's words here in Galatians 6.10, or 6.14 rather. He uses cosmos twice. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom, whereby, that is by the cross, the cosmos is crucified unto me and I unto the Cosmos. I'm just saying it so you'll know the words there are not age, but referring to a thinking. Because in any evil age, there is a way of thinking, a way of feeling, a way of acting that opposes God. And that's where another gospel would take them. That's the point. Now, what's Paul saying in verse 14 of Galatians 6? His boasting, whatever it is, is rooted in Christ. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the means whereby the world is crucified to Paul. The death of Christ means for Paul, because he's been called, is that the world is dead to Paul. And Paul, of course, is dead to the world. It's, it's, it's lost some of its appeal to Paul. Because Paul has been delivered from this present evil world. If they turn from the grace of Christ to another gospel, what happens? The world, the way of thinking and feeling and acting, comes back. Where the world is not such a dead corpse to me anymore. I feel at home in the world. Why? Because of another gospel. It it can have that power. So look at what Paul says next in verse 15. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision has any power... That's the expression of the gospel they were turning to was not the gospel of circumcision, it was the gospel of self-justification. If you will do this deed, you can be right with God. That has no power with God. And the opposite, to be uncircumcised has no power with God. What does? Being a new creature. Now what Paul is 
very carefully saying here is he's referring to faith in Jesus Christ. We know that because of Galatians 5, 6, right? Paul almost states the exact same words with the exception. In Galatians 5, he says, faith produces love. Here he says a new creature. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any power, but faith which worketh by love. Galatians 6.15, in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision or uncircumcision has any power, but a new creature. Because a new creature in Christ is someone that's responded to the gospel and is by faith following Jesus. So to set aside the true gospel for another gospel is to set aside faith, which means the way of thinking, feeling, and living of the world starts to draw you back in very easily because you've lost the power of the gospel. Listen to how John speaks with this word, world. And I'll try to connect it with our point of a powerless gospel versus the gospel that delivers us from this present way of thinking, feeling, and acting. 1 John 2.15 Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Because if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now is John being a little too harsh on us? I mean... I guess I wouldn't use the word love, but I like my car a lot. There are things I like a lot. I guess you could cross it into the word love. Is John just coming down too hard on people? Don't love the world because if you do, the love of the Father is not in you, John says. That's cosmos. And the point is, the way of thinking, the way of feeling, and the way of acting is a love that opposes God. We're being drawn back into loving something more than we love God. That's John's point. So John, why why would you say the love of God is not in us? Because all that it's in the world. Lust, lust, pride. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Is not of the Father, but is of the world. In other words, this is what John's saying. Your lust can never be satisfied. So he's not saying, look, quit loving your food and loving things. He's saying, no, you're loving it if you expect it to deliver on your desire to be satisfied. If that's what you're after, then the love of God is not there, John says. If I expect my car and my possessions and my things... The way of thinking and feeling and acting of the world is what? They do expect creation to deliver on their pleasure and to satisfy them. Why? Because the love of God is not in them. And if that is what characterizes me, then it's not in me. Because the world is passing away. How can your desires be satisfied when the thing that satisfies you is going away? And your lust will die with it. It's not even possible. So John's not coming hard on people. Don't like that food when you eat it. Don't like driving that new car. Don't think that anything in the world, the way you think or feel or act in the world, and the way the world does, that that is going to deliver. It cannot and it will not. And that's why you turn to another gospel. 
I think that's Paul's point and why he left it open in chapter 1, although he identifies it for the church of Galatia. In chapter 3, it was, it was law, circumcision. Because you say, that's just not my thing. Well, what is? That's the point of Paul. Another gospel is powerless to deliver you because another gospel can't do anything for your soul. The present evil world is under the sway of the prince of the power of the air, the prince of darkness, the rulers of darkness. And what is their power? What is the power of the devil? It's the power of pleasure. It is. Has he gripped you? Have you turned to another gospel? So Paul puts this right up front in rebuking the churches because he wants them to know this gospel you're turning to can't deliver you from the present evil world. In fact, it's drawing you back into a way of thinking and feeling and acting that God rescued you from because you're shutting off the pipeline of grace. You're turning from faith and you're embracing another gospel. Now let's go back to that thing you thought of. If you did, when I ask you, what's the greatest news you could possibly, possibly receive? See, I'm going to guess that it was the greatest news at this moment of the greatest gain. And that's what another gospel is. Another gospel promises you a greater gain than God. Now let me show you in the text. Verse 6, I marvel that you are so soon removed from Him. As what? As what? The greatest superior gain to a gospel where you think is going to deliver on what you want. Every day, you and our children are being lured by a myriad of gospels, by social media and every other way that are telling them this is the greatest gain you could possibly experience. It's another gospel. Because they're being removed from Him to another gospel, which means God is not another gospel. He's the real gospel. He's the real gain. He's the real satisfier. So my last point is another gospel cannot satisfy. It cannot. It will not. Why then would you and I turn to another gospel? Incidentally, that's the core, isn't it? You say, I don't get why these people would want to think that you could be circumcised to be saved. Why do you want to win the championship? Why do you want to sink the last shot? Parents, why do you want your children to be the best academically if it's a wrong reason? You're the greatest. See, if you can justify yourself, you're the greatest. It's self-satisfaction because of your superior achievements and your superior abilities. That's why they were being duped by a gospel of circumcision because it gave them a fair show in the flesh. People would make much of them. Don't tell me just don't tell me you're never tempted with that. You like it. Something in you 
just gets all loosey-goosey bumps on you when someone starts praising you. And that's our flesh, isn't it? Beloved, another gospel is powerless to satisfy you. And that's why they were being drawn away. The core of every gospel is a core of what is my greatest gain. And that's Paul's point. I marvel that you are removed from him to a gospel. Can't deliver you, can't call you, can't sustain you, can't satisfy you, can't be the greatest treasure, can't be the greatest gain, because it's not a gospel. There's not another. It's false. Just like there's no other God. So let us, during this 4th of July weekend, where we thank God for our freedoms and those who died to give us freedom in this country for as long as we have it, to remember there's a greater freedom in Christ. And Paul says, stand fast in the liberty with Christ has made you free. Free to do what? To see Christ, to come to Christ, to trust Christ and to experience Him as the greatest gain. So yeah, you can love your food, but not like that. You can enjoy creation, but not as the greatest, right? The true gospel is Jesus died to bring us to God. He forgives us of our sins. We're justified. He's sanctifying us. He will deliver us to glory to experience the love of God, which goes on forever to the full satisfaction and enjoyment of the soul. So beware the warnings of other gospels and what they are, luring you away to something greater. And then remember the the weakness of another gospel and the power of the true gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us.